This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, it's 7.06, it's Wednesday, the 7th of February. It's, of course, the morning run with Philip C and I'm Wong Xiaoning. Now, in about 30 minutes, we'll be discussing the recent developments in the Thai economy and whether they might actually cut rates. But in the meantime, let's recap how global markets closed yesterday. All generally in positive territory, the US markets, the Dow was up 0.4%, S&P 500 up 0.2%, Nasdaq up 0.1%. Asian markets also followed, with the notable exception being Singapore, right? As Singapore's STI down 0.3%, but the Nikkei down down 0.5%, Hang Seng up 4%, Shanghai Composite up 3.2%, and back home, FBM KLC up 0.1%. Wow, so a pretty good uh, day around, uh, basically, for most markets. But for some insights on perhaps what might also move markets for the rest of the week, we speak to Jack Guzzi, Director for Strategy at VFS Group. Good morning, Jack. Good to speak to you. Now, this week, China did tighten some restrictions on short selling for domestic and offshore investors. How impactful will these measures be in stemming capital flight? Yeah, good morning, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yesterday, it certainly helped. We saw, as you just alluded to before I came on, a very strong day for Hong Kong and mainland markets, you know, in excess of 3% for both of them. We did see a good flow of um, inflow funds from the northbound connect, you know, a record day showing that, you know, possibly some foreign investment was coming back in. It's a good move and it certainly will work in the short term. I just don't think stemming the capital flight is the biggest issue that China's facing or China's markets are facing at the moment. I think it's stemming the domestic investment. Now, we're seeing a lot of mainland Chinese move to other asset classes. Uh, for example, you know, gold purchases um, are at all-time highs for Chinese citizens as they move to protect their wealth ag- away from a volatile stock market. Now, obviously, China's got a very tight capital control, but what we've seen is a record flight of Chinese money into overseas-listed ETFs that are run by local money managers. In fact, the flight has been so high that some of these ETFs are trading way above their net, a- net asset value. So I think the biggest issue facing the government and the CCP at the moment and the regulatory body there is how do they bring confidence back into the domestic purchaser? Um, How do they make sure that mainland Chinese citizens are confident in the likes of their companies and are prepared to put their hard-earned money into them and keep them at that point in time? So I think that is the major issue um, suffering that. And obviously foreign foreign investment will come once they start to shore up their domestic market. Some good moves we saw. We also saw some news that President Xi was going to meet with the regulatory bodies yep. about stemming the market. And we also saw you know, some of these national teams come in, which led to a strong day yesterday and a very big reversal from bottoms on Monday. Uh, whether this is a sign of a long-term recovery, we don't know yet because we've seen that a lot um, out of Chinese markets, particularly over the last 18 months. Uh, but nonetheless, removing short selling or yeah. stemming it will help stabilize markets. So, Jack, I think your sentiment is shared by many fund managers because there is a Bloomberg title, Wall Street snubs China for India, right, in historic market shift. Do you think this shift is permanent? Yeah, look, I don't think it's permanent, but I think it's, you know, permanently temporary, if that even makes sense. I just made that up on the way. Um, <laughs> look, there was a Goldman Sachs report that said 40% of fund managers out of the U.S., believe that China was uninvestable, and that's a very high mark. Uh, I think, you know, you're once bitten twice shy with the moment of China. You know, there's 
the threat of regulatory risk. You know, we saw that in gaming earlier on in the year, this year or late last year. Um, you know, you have, you know, you don't know what's going to happen with the property market, which builder is going to go under, which one, one is going to be forced into liquidation and which one's going to be rescued. You know, there's no rhyme or reason that I can see at the moment. And therefore, emerging market allocation is flowing to probably the next best place. You know, I, you know, China still has a lot of things going for it, it's still 15% of the world's GDP, it's still the largest export in the world, it's technologically, you know, innovative in where it's going, particularly in, you know, look at many markets, but at the moment it needs to restore confidence. I feel like, further to my earlier point, the first step is restoring confidence in its domestic market, in its citizens, who will be the backbone of its market. We've got to remember Chinese markets are very different to US markets. It doesn't have the steady institutional hand. It's a retail army that predominantly does the volume. Um, and once they do that, I think there's no doubt that managers around the world will need to catch up their exposure to China. But at the moment, that isn't the case. Which then begs the question about the property crisis that China is facing. I mean, we do know that the court has ordered, the Hong Kong court has ordered a liquidation against Evergrande. Do you see any long-term, any solution to this overall crisis though? To be honest with you, I was very surprised with the ruling and how it went about. I didn't expect that they would, you know, liquidate Evergrande and wrap it all up. Now, remember, this is a Hong Kong ruling. Um, it it doesn't or it does, you know, no one knows how it's going to apply to mainland assets. But I have no doubt that there was some influence from the mainland on the decision. Um, mm. And my expectation was they would, you know, kick the can down the road or, or you know, reappropriate some of these assets. Uh, but it was a very interesting ruling. So, I mean, it puts them into a precarious place because if they apply the ruling on the mainland where most of Evergrande assets are, then you almost have a fire sale in sense, you know, in senses of the dollar on, on some of these assets, which, you know, brings to, to question that stability program you have within China and what happens to other properties and, and you know, citizens who have pre-purchased this. If they don't apply the ruling from Hong Kong, then what does it say to foreign companies who are listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange if, you know, a court ruling can't rule on, you know, HK listed assets? Uh, so it's a bit of a precarious place. You know, we we did see, and you alluded to, I think, you know, about a whitelist, about, you know, funding projects for some developers that are in trouble. I mean, I talk about retail investors, but this is the, the key caveat. They need to bring the property market under control. You know, it's almost 25 to 30% of their GDP. That might not be the case going forward, and that mm. might be very good long term. But when we look at Chinese wealth, predominantly it is held in property, and when their property markets or their property assets are going down, um, they refuse to spend and they refuse to invest in other areas. And that fear of that Japanese long-running deflation, no growth, um, you know, starts to really have some legs. So, again, I was very surprised by what happened. Um, and it will be interesting to see what they do going forward because they have to stem what is happening in the property market and they've got to ensure that, you know, at least some of these bigger ones like Country Garden don't fall the same way. All right. Thank you very much for your time. That was Jack Cruzy, Director for Strategy at the FS Group, uh, telling us that when it comes to China, it's really all about confidence, right? So the government is mm -hmm. making strides to shore up the equity market. The meeting with Xi Jinping, very critical. Likely, is this a sign that the Chinese government has had enough with how much lower the Chinese equity market can fall? 
will there be some other more forceful measures to actually bolster uh, this? Well, what some would say is a very obvious indicator of Chinese economic strength. Very interesting point you say, and I think Jack was also alluding to that, right? Is the Chinese equities market really a proper indicator of the strength of China's economy? It's also the big question mark, right? Hence why Jack also was talking about, you know, the interventions that the Chinese government wants to do. Really, should it be focusing all its efforts here with respect to the markets? Well, we'll be watching this space. But let's turn our attention to some of the results that came out uh, last night. Um, first off, UBS, who of course swallowed Credit Suisse just last year, <laughs> uh, they narrowly beat fourth quarter earnings expectations and announced plans for share buybacks worth up to a billion dollars in the second half of the year. Net loss came in at, at only $279 million for the quarter. It's second consecutive loss due to the integrating cost with Credit Suisse. Of course, this was lower than the analysts' expected loss of $372 million. Now, the reason why there was this much better than expected result was that the bank actually reported a quicker than expected return of client inflows to Credit Suisse's wealth management business since the takeover, which it completed in June 2023. So new net assets in the flagship global wealth management business were about $77 billion, while new net deposits across GWN and the personal corporate banking division also totaled $77 billion. You know what boggles my mind is the amount of cost savings that they're going to, um, you know, eventually reap and that is $13 billion by the end of 2026 uh, with half of that coming from headcount. So you investment bankers, oof, <laughs> not great news, right? There's a lot of y'all who might not have a job in a few years' time. But what I'm amazed is how f- how much fat was there in these two companies that you can cut so much cost? But there's a lot of synergies you get, especially on the IT side from a banking system standpoint, isn't it? So, Or is it the private bankers? Because now, you know, you have, you like some of y'all might be servicing the same account. Perhaps, right? That's I mean, that's the manpower cost that you refer to, right? Mm. So very key to see how you unpack the synergies when you merge two banks. For me, for sure, the two big bucket items, right? It's the people cost, like you and me, and also IT digital costs. But I'm cost. irreplaceable. <laughs> Anyway, you know, irreplaceable. Says you. Says me. Says you. Uh, but UBS this morning, 13 buys, 10 holes, just four sells. Consensus target price. This is the US listed company, by the way. Uh, 31 US dollars and 30 cents. Last time price, $28.15. So let's watch this space. Let's see how much more they can squeeze from this acquisition. Now, let's turn our attention to Snap. Does anybody still use Snap? We were having, we were talking about this before, yes, right? And I right. was like, who still uses it? Well, clearly not enough because the share price plunged thirty percent in extended trading after reporting revenue that were below estimates, and they also then issued a forecast below street expectations. Earnings per share came in at just eight cents. Revenue did rise five percent year on year to one point three six billion dollars, though. But Shani, maybe you're not in the right age segment, right? Let's just face the reality there, right? Because actually global daily active users stood at 414 million people. So people are still using the app. It's just that you're not one of them. I'm not, but clearly they need more of me because their <laughs> results aren't good. Now, um, they are also going to cut jobs, 10% of their global workforce. Apparently, thirty something like 32,000 employees in the tech space have been cut so far just this year. So does the street like this name? I'm going to venture a guess, no. I remember this was a bit of a pandemic, darling. Uh, And the answer is no. So because there's 12 buys, 
29 holes, just four cells. Consensus target price for this stock, 16 US dollars and 27 cents. Last time price, 17 US dollars and 45 cents. But that was, of course, during just regular market hours. Now, that's all the uh, interesting corporate news we have for you. But before we get... Um, but first, we have a quick message. Yes, Standard Chartered has been in Malaysia for 149 years and consumer banking is an important area for them. Catch our conversation with Samir, Managing Director and Head of Consumer, Private and Business Banking at Standard Chartered Bank Malaysia to learn more about how the bank is maintaining its edge in consumer banking and how Standard Chartered differentiates itself from the competition. By serving clients across life stages, leveraging open architecture and investing in cutting-edge digital wealth solutions. Tune in today at 9.15am. Up next, we'll be covering the top stories in the newspapers and portals this morning. Stay tuned for that. BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.